Welcome back to the Falklands War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 16. As we heard in episode 15, the British were ascendant, but they'd paid a high price. 26 Argentinian planes had been shot down since the landings at San Carlos. 10 British ships had been damaged by unexploded bombs. So imagine the carnage had these been fused properly. Five ships had been sunk, HMS Sheffield, Ardent, Antelope, Coventry, and the SS Atlantic Conveyor. One more would go down before the end of this short war. Back in the UK, the Cabinet was muttering about action, and naturally this pressure on the leadership in the Falklands became unbearable. Their gaze switched to the south instead of the east where Port Stanley stood. It turned to Darwin and Goose Green. Parachute regiments were going to take the brunt of the casualties in the upcoming infamous battle. Just a quick word about composition of the army. A British infantry battalion is comprised of 600 men on average, organized into an HQ company and four rifle companies designated as Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta. Each of these companies were around 90 strong, made up of three 30-man platoons and a headquarters, one or two officers, usually a major. Each platoon is broken down into sections of eight men, It would also be a support company, specialists, if you like, comprised of anti-tank, mortar and machine gun platoons. Each battalion is commanded by a lieutenant colonel with majors leading the companies, lieutenants leading platoons and corporals leading sections. In the British Army, a Royal Marine commando has one less rifle company and marine ranks are more senior than the army equivalent, while the companies are led by captains. Back to the war. In the first days after the San Carlos landing, two para had suffered some discomfort waiting on Sussex Mountain for orders to move. They were forbidden to patrol towards Darwin, which was south of their position, because Delta Squadron of the SAS were operating there. Sometimes they would have to duck the anti-aircraft fire from their own ships as these oilicons and machine guns aimed at the low-flying Skyhawks and Mirages. Seven men were already casualties that had trench foot, and that only took three days. So they were miserable, and as they monitored the loss of their ships, began to think they were losing the war. Then, on the morning of the 23rd of May, two para received a warning order from three commando brigade. Three of the four companies were to carry out a large-scale raid on the Argentinian positions at Darwin and Goose Green. One company would remain behind at Sussex Mountain. The officers were not happy about the plan. Lieutenant Colonel Herbert Jones, or H., as he was known, pointed out that they were advancing in exactly the opposite direction to the main strategic goal, Stanley. H was also unhappy about the plan itself. They were going to attack strongly held enemy positions from an obvious direction, the north, without full air and artillery support. He asked that three para be moved by chopper or by sea to the south so they could attack from there. No, said the brigade commander Julian Thompson. The loss of the Chinooks on the Atlantic conveyor made any move of this sort impossible. So on the afternoon of the 24th of May 1982, Delta Company led off the long march to secure its first objective known as Camilla Creek House. That was 11 miles down the route, and following Delta Company would be the remainder of the battalion. Camilla Creek House overlooked the Goose Green settlement. It was the obvious strategic point. At 7 that night, the attack was cancelled. Poor weather meant that their supporting artillery could not be moved. D Company had to march back up Sussex Mountain, back to their waterlogged trenches and cold nights. Two days later, on the 26th of May, Lieutenant Colonel Jones was summoned to another urgent meeting at Brigade HQ. Two para were now heading to Goose Green once more. What Jones didn't know was that Brigadier Thompson was trying to stop the assault. 
He had phoned the War Cabinet back in the UK and tried to convince his superiors that the southern isthmus was no real danger to his flank. He could easily hold him back while he marched on Stanley. He was worried that what was a form of a sideshow could go horribly wrong. It was unnecessary, except for propaganda purposes. But he failed. Thatcher and her cabinet wanted blood as quickly as possible. It was a political imperative, because she was aware that public opinion had shifted after the loss of so many ships, and the fact that since the landing at San Carlos, the British had appeared to have frozen themselves at the bay. There were a few significant failings that began to show up around now, and one involved intelligence gathering. As you're going to hear, two para were sent into battle against a far bigger force because intelligence had got a few things badly wrong. They suggested that the Argentinians defending the settlement had a weak battalion, fewer than 600 men, and Thompson believed the 450 men of two para were enough. Once his attempts at stopping his assault failed, he was determined to make it a swift victory. Unfortunately, there were close to four times the number of Argentinians waiting for his men. They may have been hungry, cold and demotivated, but they were no pushover. Thompson needed to move three of his 105mm guns into position to support this attack. Not enough firepower, but better than nothing. They'd be placed at Camilla Creek House. There was a request for the Scorpion and Scimitar light tanks to support his operation, but there wasn't enough petrol, and so his request was denied. The officers then asked for the Volvo-tracked vehicles to assist the BVs, as they were known. They were vital to move heavy weapons like the mortars. The platoons could not pack all eight of their tubes with all their ammo. No was the answer again. Eventually, they decided to take only two mortars and parcel out the bombs amongst two para. It was thought that the gunfire support from the frigate HMS Arrow would supplement things its firepower alone was the equivalent of a full battery of 105mm, and of course, the Harriers would also add their bombs and cannon to the mix. But the ships were unable to move around to deal with battlefield tactical changes, nor could they be aimed as accurately as artillery in the field. The officers were briefed by SAS patrols who'd been operating above Darwin and Goose Green for a week. Then two para moved out at 8pm on the 26th of May, heading down the mountain towards Camilla Creek. Delta Company was in the lead. They'd all abandoned their heavy packs, taking fighting order gear, but they still had to carry 48 hours of Arctic rations and at least 30 kilograms of ammunition each. Some of the engineers, the sappers, were marching in borrowed gear. Their equipment lay aboard the landing ship Sir Lancelot, which still had an unexploded bomb on board. No one was allowed to unload it until it was made safe. The going was tough, but at least they were going. At least we were doing something, said Dare Farrah Hockley, officer commanding Alpha Company. At this stage, the Paras were pleased to be moving and didn't much think about what strategic value this attack held for the British force. Two hours short of Camilla Creek, the Argentinians spotted Delta Company and began sporadic shelling. The bombardment fell east of the column. Then Delta began to walk into craters in the track. The Argentinians had bombarded this area earlier. Had they decided to aim back along the trail... The carnage could have been biblical. By now, the men of two para were tired, moving at speed across the unyielding rocks and tussock grass, streams and bogs. A 54-year-old RAF squadron leader, who was supposed to be the forward air controller, or FAC, collapsed, and anti-tank platoon commander Captain Peter Ketley took over the role. By 3 a.m. the next morning, Delta Company had secured Kimmerner Creek House and blinked their red torch signal that all was well. 
The farm had been abandoned, and despite its strategic importance, the Argentinians let it be taken without a fight. Lieutenant Colonel Jones ordered the men to rest in the buildings until daylight. Over 400 men squeezed into the abandoned house and sheds, trying to shiver themselves to sleep. It was only when the sun began to rise that H saw that they were in a very fortunate hollow, invisible on all sides to any enemy who were now around 500 yards away. Some of the NCOs warned that two para was bunched too closely together and should move apart, but H was confident of their safety. They then switched on the BBC World Service for an update, and instantly the men were shocked. The lead bulletin from their defence correspondent was that two para were within five miles of Darwin. This naturally enraged Colonel Jones, who immediately changed orders, and the men deployed and dug in across a widely dispersed defensive area. With friends like these, he must have thought, his own national radio station had given the game away. Meanwhile, the Argentinians heard the report too. They didn't believe it. Obviously, it was the BBC working in tandem with their enemy. No one in their right mind would expose their troops to this kind of danger, thought Buenos Aires. Surely they wouldn't be that stupid. Waiting at Goose Green was the Argentinian task force called Mercedes, and the main unit was the 12th Regiment. Its commander was Lieutenant Colonel Italo Piaggi, a tall officer with a shaven head and a hearty nature. He was nicknamed Kojak, if you remember that famous television show of the period. Colonel Piaggi heard the infamous BBC report and said after the war that I did not take it too seriously. I thought it was more psychological action because it would be crazy for them to announce an actual move. I made no changes because of that broadcast. That's irony for you. No reinforcements were brought in, no new orders, as you were. Other British journalists claimed that the Argentinian garrison at Darwin Goose Green had been reinforced on the early hours of 28th of May by a strategic reserve from Mount Kent area following the report. That's completely wrong, and the kind of myth-making that happens in war. Still, the BBC were going to grovel for their mistake, which was really unacceptable behaviour from journalists embedded in a military formation. Had things gone really pear-shaped, and they almost did, the BBC reporter may have faced what in Vietnam was called fragging when your own troops lob a grenade into your foxhole because you're such an idiot. Biaggi was a good soldier, despite reports afterwards by British journalists that the Argentinians at Goose Green and Darwin were despondent and most didn't want to fight. Biaggi's story is different, and I've got reports from the Argentinian men with him, and they weren't lying down. They were ready to fight as Tu Para was about to find out. Piaggi admittedly led a cobbled-together unit of 554 men, and he had 11 rifle platoons to call on versus Tu Para's 10 platoons, but that wasn't all. There were many other Argentinian units at Goose Green. Men of Alpha Battery of the 4th Air Mobile Artillery Regiment had just arrived with four 105mm guns, which were going to provide somewhat of a rude awakening for the British. What's more, Biaggi's artillery had 1,800 rounds, whereas two paras had only 800. The Argentinians were going to win any artillery battle should it boil down to something like that. The reality is this battle was not going to be one of artillery, ship bombardment and aircraft bombings. It was going to be an infantryman's fight, face-to-face, hand-to-hand. Together with some engineers... Air Force anti-personnel gunners and a large number of Air Force personnel, there were actually 1,500 Argentinian troops at Goose Green. And they were dug in. Soon to attack were 450 infantry of two para. 
Had the British known this, the entire battle would have changed. The tactics would have changed. Perhaps the strategy would have changed. Brigadier Thompson would never attack a strong enemy defensive position with around a quarter of the enemy's strength. Klauswitz, Sun Tzu, every other military expert knows that you should attack a strong enemy defensive position with at least three times their strength or some kind of heavy weapon that makes up the numbers. Thompson was doing the opposite, but unknowingly. This is why the British assault on Goose Green and Darwin was a travesty, an indictment of the lack of proper intelligence, a grave waste of human life, if you like. The courage displayed by both sides at times is going to defy description, but I'll give it a shot. Biagi's men were from the 1963 class of conscripts. In other words, they'd been in the army for less than four months when they were dispatched to the Falklands. They were facing professional British soldiers, and many would pay for their lack of experience. Biagi had other issues. He only had two radios for his forward positions, and these were bolted inside Land Rovers he had seized from the Kelpers. He had no other vehicles for 1,500 men. On paper, his regiment was supposed to have 25 machine guns, but he had 11. There were 10 81mm mortars and four 120mm mortars, but two of the 81 mils and one of the 120 mils could only fire at a set range because someone had welded the pipes to their base plates. He was supposed to have 13 recoilless rifles, but he had only one, and worse, it didn't have a sight. As he said to journalist Martin Meredith after the war, Task Force Mercedes would have to meet the British in shirt sleeves. The orders Piaggi received were also confusing. First, he was told to control a defence perimeter of 17 kilometres around Goose Green, with the main emphasis on countering an attack from the sea. Once the British landed at San Carlos, his orders changed. Brigadier General Parada ordered him to extend his defences further northwards and specifically to face a possible attack from San Carlos, which was exactly what Brigadier Thompson had been ordered to do. The British were being obvious, which is not very clever in war. But the new orders did cause Piaggi a big headache. His men had constructed deep and effective trenches and bunkers at the 17-kilometer perimeter. Now they had to pick up their belongings and head further up into the isthmus. They'd laid hundreds of mines there, now they had to demine their own fields and build a new perimeter that was 31 kilometers long. Those changes, said Piaggi later, caused us a lot of problems and in fact weakened his concentrated perimeter. Piaggi watched as two observation parties of British paras headed towards his positions during the day of the 27th of May. Then his men saw the two harriers they were being guided by the paras. The Harriers dropped cluster bombs on the Argentinian 105mm artillery positions but missed. The Harriers turned and in the second run fired at 12 regiments Alpha Company in their trenches but missed again. One of the Harriers turned to attack a third time, a bad mistake as he was hit by 35mm anti-aircraft fire and ejected several miles away. The pilot survived. Biagi ordered his reconnaissance platoon to find out what was happening in the north and the platoon commander, Lieutenant Carlos Morales, headed out with three men in one of the Land Rovers. They were not heard from again, at least by the Argentinians. They had been ambushed by para-patrols. All four were captured, two wounded in the exchange. Now Piaggi was down to one Land Rover and one radio. He told journalists later he was livid at this point, as you can well imagine. It makes my blood boil every time I think of it, he said after the war. 
Most of the communications I had with my forward company in that sector during the battle were by young soldiers on foot. He was fighting a 20th century war using 18th century communication methods. And so on the day of the attack, the Argentinians were waiting for the British, but not because of the BBC report. They had been expecting this attack from the moment the British landed at San Carlos, and they actually thought the BBC report was a false flag. Two para Charlie Company were going to find out just how prepared the Argentinians were. As the men of the parachute regiment moved forward, attempting to reconnoitre, they were fired on by mortars, artillery and small arms and abandoned the attempt. Shortly afterwards, the blue Land Rover you just heard about was captured, and then Morales gave the game away according to two para. He told H there was a large group waiting for the British, leading to Lieutenant Colonel Jones exclaiming, What the hell have the SAS been doing down there? H, though, wasn't completely convinced, thinking that Morales was laying it on a bit thick to demotivate his men. At 4pm on the 28th of May, two Paris officers crouched down around H as he gave his orders for the coming battle. He called it a six-phase, night-day, silent, noisy battalion attack to capture Darwin and Goose Green. Charlie Company, or the patrol echelon, would recon the last four miles of the start line, then secure it. Alpha and Bravo companies would then advance south through the Argentine positions, taking the eastern and western sides of the Isthmus, respectively. After the flanks were secure, Delta Company would pass through Bravo in the second phase. Then in a kind of fire and maneuver action, Bravo would pass through them in turn for the attack on Boca House. The Argentinians should be overrun during the hours of darkness, said H, leaving only the settlements at Goose Green to be attacked during the daylight hours. He wanted to reduce the risk of civilian casualties by being able to see who they were shooting at. For the men of Two Para, this was a big moment. It was the British Army's first action against a major enemy since Korea. The organization that had made a name for itself at Arnhem during World War II was going to lead the ground war. And what happened next is for episode 17. The music theme for this series is a composition by Kevin MacLeod called Devastation and Revenge. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. It helps increase the visibility. And if you want to contact me, you can email me through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter. My handle is at Des Latham. Until next, ciao.